Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict fight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 11, season 1. Today, I talk to historian Dr Lindsay Robb, an associate professor in modern British history at Northumbria University. She has done a lot of work looking at the British industrial worker on the home front during the Second World War. She spoke to me about what motivated these individuals to work during the Second World War. She spoke to me from her office in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Lindsay, welcome to the Combat Motivation Podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in British civilian workers during the Second World War? Yeah, sure. So thank you for having me, firstly. Um, so I'm currently Senior Lecturer in Modern British History at Northumbria University. Um, but back in the mists of time, when I was a, a lowly MSc student, um, I was interested in Second World War. And I noticed, uh, encouraged by my supervisors, but I noticed this gap that in the literature and in just popular memory, but also in the academic literature, there's a real gap in the, the discussion of civilian workers and especially male civilian workers there's a significant literature on on women and a significant popular memory about women you know in the factories and in the fields but the the vast male population who are you know working in the home front were just completely um omitted from this history and I thought that was really uh unfair and really and they're a really interesting group and so um that that sort of noticing that gap in knowledge turned into 10 years of my life spent um studying uh, men who were uh, in, in, well specifically men in reserved occupations but men in civilian occupation in the second world war i did um, my phd uh, which turned into my first book and i also did my postdoc uh, which is about oral history project interviewing men who had been in reserved occupations and that was a really fortuitous moment we got the funding for that at a really fortuitous moment because i don't think it would put we did the interviews in 2013 and even then i really felt like i was running through a closing door because the men I was interviewing incredibly old and now I th- had we not done it at that exact moment we would have lost a really a really important part of history and, and their real insight into a very specific but really important part of Second World War history. Before we get into the detail could you d- describe the scale and nature of the British civilian workforce during the Second World War? Yeah so the, the most important thing to realise is that um, so Britain has a system of what's called reserved occupation so there are jobs where um, men are forbidden from enlistment uh, into the military because of uh, their civilian skills. There are some exemptions, for example, electricians are taken into the military to do electricians' jobs and so on, um, and, and um, they are scheduled by age. So some jobs, especially industrial jobs, they're reserved at 18. Others are lighthouse keeper, trade union executive are, are, are uh, reserved at 30. But um, in 1944, when at the peak of armed forces employment in Britain, there were 5 million men um, in the army and in the air force, and there are 5 million men in reserve. So there are as many men who fall under the schedule of reserved occupations as who as ever were enlisted into the military during the Second World War. And so they are really a sizable uh, male experience, young males during the Second World War. Um, and civilian work covers, you know, a vast array of stuff. Um, the most obvious thing is, is industrial work, given that it, a war of this um, time in a war of the scale just needs vast vast industrial production to just manage and, and function but other jobs are cultural work um see lighthouse keepers um uh, uh, lawyers dentists uh, jobs that sh- 
are required to keep the home front running as well as to sort of aid the, the war effort are also part of schedule of reserved occupation. So it, the the um, the scale of civilian workers is is, is phenomenal and and, and and really matches the um, the the the, the scale of, of armed forces employment. In fact, that's one of the things, if you look at government records, that they are very conscious of. They talk about the manpower balance and the manpower equation. And the, you know, to, to make one bigger, you need to take away from the other. And there's a finite amount of young men in, in Britain who are needed to do both of these jobs. And balancing out those two, you can't have an army that's unarmed, but you can't have too many guns and nobody in the army, right? So they have to, the, the balancing out who should be out of the army and who should be in the military is a sort of constant balancing act that the, the government is trying to do throughout the Second World War. And is the government, and this is my question three, is the government um, the agency that determines who is a civilian volunteer and who enters the military? And that's partly based on their background and their previous yeah. occupation. Yeah, it really is. Um, um, so the schedule of reserved occupations is first drawn up in 1922 uh, in response to the the sort of catastrophic um, un- unchecked enlistment which happened 1914 to 1916. 16. Um, they draw up and shelve it. You know, they don't. And, and then during uh, as tensions grow in Europe, um, they, they bring it back out. They redraw it. And then in 1939, in January, when the uh, the whole of Britain gets the, it's printed in the Times, but they get a copy of the Schedule of Reserved Occupations along with the notice of what civil defence jobs will exist and what the um, enlistment criteria will be in the event of, an, of a war. So it's something they've pre-planned. Um, it proves to not be enough in its own so the government brings in what's called the essential works order which means that individual workplaces fall under that jurisdiction so nobody could leave that that um, factory or workplace without um, without um, permission from the government nor could they be sacked apart from from gross conduct so yeah the government really has a very tight control on who is where and and also, to a lesser extent, but also a significant point to make that they do direct labour. So especially in, if, if you think of industry, people who were in industries which were making things which were no longer considered essential, they would remove things that were considered essential. Or later in the war, when specific needs arose. So for example, in the project I mentioned earlier, I, I interviewed a couple of men who had were welders and that sort of thing. And they were taken um, to the coast for a secret project. Um, and they found out later it was the Mulberry Harbour. So things like that were those very specific need for very specific skills the government would direct them. So moving on to what motivated the civilian workers to do their work, obviously five million men, five million individuals, very, very complex and difficult question to ask, answer. What um, what sort of themes emerge from the interviews you've done and the sort of research you've conducted? I mean, first and foremost, um, they, it was their job, so we shouldn't forget money. Um, and so the, you know, um, and I think it's important to flag up here that a huge numbers of the areas where the, especially industrial work was taking place, were the areas hardest hit by the depression. So what we found when we did the interviews, and I say we when I mean I did the interviews, it was a team project, but um, I did the interviews is that men who, for example, men in Dundee, men in the northeast of, of England, um, you know, they were, they were very happy not to be sent to the military because they were suddenly having spent their childhoods and youths in, 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 in an economy which didn't value them. They were able to suddenly make money. I interviewed a man in Dundee who was super thrilled that he was able to buy his first wallet, um, you know, because he had something to put in it. And, and so these men, so some men we interviewed said they they, were, they probably thought everybody in the army wished they were them because they had they were sort of earning. They got to stay at home. Um, they are... Um, I think there was a common theme at the time that men, especially in reserved occupations, were 
seeking to evade. Um, John Profumo, um, then a, a sort of lowly MP rather than this figure he would become in the 1960s, made this sort of virulent speech in the, the Houses of Parliament about how he wanted to lay his hands on these men hiding in, in, schedule, in reserved occupation. Um, and, and in reality, there's very, very few men uh, there trying to hide. There, there isn't an attempt to evade service. And in fact, when we did the interviews, we found actually the exact opposite. I mean, the interviews we did were slightly skewed and to being alive in 2013, you had to have a fairly young during the war. Um, but exactly half of the men we interviewed tried to evade their reserved state. So one man I interviewed um, was a miner in, um, in Scotland and he went down a mine and lit a cigarette in an attempt to become fired for gross misconduct so that he would be free to join the army. Um, all they did was send him to a different mine and so he was thwarted. But, uh, and so yeah, so other men just went to different towns to try and enlist or some tried to go into the merchant navy because that was another, so because they could use their skills there, but it was a way of sort of still doing a service, even if it wasn't military service. So, um, so yeah, so there was there was a, a palpable tension for some men, especially young men, um, to get out of, of of civilian work and go to the sort of to the real fight of, of the war. Um, and I suppose a third thing to think about would be sort of nationalism, the sort of pressure of the war. So um, production rates go up dramatically after Dunkirk because obviously there's a, a feeling that Britain is about to be invaded and the production need continue. Um, it rose to really unsustainable levels. There was an average of about seventy to eighty hours a week in. in in most factories and that's just not sustainable but so there, there really was a sense that the men uh, wanted to sort of do all they could to sort of help win the war so there was a real I mean like you say five million men five million different opinions but I think there was a real mixed bag there and partly it's to do with the war itself partly it's to do with um, the experiences before the war uh, 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 as well as their sort of um, and like say the men who wanted to evade it was often men who were um, actually remote so men who were in um, industry so men who were in Newcastle or Dundee or an area where there was a huge number of young men like them who weren't serving I think the pressure was slightly less it was always an internalized pressure there was no uh, no real reports of a sort of white feather situation that we saw in, in the first world war it was very much an internalized thing but I interviewed one man in, um, in Kilmarnock which is a small town in Ayrshire near where I'm actually from and he I mean his interview was heartbreaking he um he so he worked in a boot factory which meant he was in a reserved occupation and he just said I was the only man left in Kilmarnock there was nobody else here I was you know everybody else that was left was either sick or you know wasn't eligible for the services and I was stuck here and my brother was out you know with with the desert rats other one was bomb disposable and I was home and I was a nobody and this and and I think that's because he was so far removed from a a bigger industrial community so huge complex factors that play to the way that men why men worked and how men felt about that work as well. How did the pre-war British work culture that many of these um, men uh, emerged from shape the way that they worked and their sort of motivation to work during the war? Yeah I mean like I said there's a legacy of the depression which changes men's relationship to their work and, their, and the state as well because especially in, in certain areas like the northeast of England and Dundee the real feeling that the state had sort of left them behind um, but yeah um, so men could draw huge amounts of pride especially men who felt like they were being slightly shortchanged when not into the military draw huge amounts of pride by being good at their job you know there's a huge amount of um, uh, in, in the interwar period especially in heavy industries there's a huge amount of pride taken in sort of skill you know being able to, to do your job quickly and efficiently but able to stand up to the sort of very tough um very tough then environments that they found themselves in environments which were dangerous hot and you know and men took off and took a bit of pride in and not needing the um the health and safety equipment or any sort of health and safety that they, you know they took risks and and you know worked hard physical labor um the the man i mentioned earlier who um 
lit a cigarette down the mine. He told me that going into the army was easy because he was so fit as a miner that um that you know he he you know he could huge huge numbers um and you know he was working so physically hard and went into the mine into the army it was nothing to him because you know he was working so hard down the mine so physicality and the sort of skill in their jobs certainly is something that comes through um and when you look at how these men experienced their um their uh, their war and how they experienced sort of wartime work as well what was the role of contemporary masculine identities in 1940s britain and what role did these play in shaping the motivation and attitude of workers to their occupational duties you see i think there's a huge the the public um, ideal of a, of a man in wartime is a military man and a man who is fighting and in young men especially did feel that that they were being sort of um, denied access to this very idealized role um and especially men who turned 18 in the course of the war i found that when we interviewed them the men who'd been 14 15 and 1939 when it came to you know they had almost grown up with the war right they knew they sort of expected this is their next step they were going to go to the army and they were going to kill the nazis and this is what they were going to do and then actually when it came down to it, they were asked to stay at home and make books and that was a real a real blow to their masculine sense self and some men found it really difficult to deal with and like I say, they, they attempted to evade, evade their reserves some comical ways about you know going back with different clothes on to the recruitment and stuff like that um but like i say there's a there's a balance here because a, a huge number of men still find pride in their in their wartime work you know that the you know that they were doing a, a lot of men were had done you know seven year apprenticeships or were doing seven year apprenticeship and you know were you know had grown up in a community which valued you know a, a well-paid job with you know with skill and those sorts of things so those those were an oper- uh, um, an avenue available to men and it was an, an, an avenue took one of the issues is, is that uh, my phd was on wartime culture and the way it talked about um war war and there was a real a civilian labor became very feminized in, in mainstream culture so if you look at millions like us and films like that there's i mean for obvious reasons they need to recruit women into jobs but I think the counterpoint of that is, is that men in civilian jobs often got pushed to the back and they, there was very little public celebration of those men. What you have instead is a huge wave of government propaganda which is aimed at them. So factory posters, prop, you know, um, Ministry of Information film about, you know, builders or factories, but it's it doesn't have the same impact as those sorts of cinematic things, which are sort of in the newspapers. I mean, newspapers, you know, the dog bites man, man bite dog thing, right? The newspapers were replete with pictures of you know five foot tall women standing on boxes to work at the lathe because that's news right man does job is not is not news so these men often got pushed to the back of wartime culture and i think that has an impact on the way they feel about themselves they're you know, they had gone from being in very, very, and you see, into work in very, very masculine job to jobs which had dropped down the masculine hierarchy, and also, really, I think probably is another sort of bite in the tail. Women were reached, were coming up to, you know, doing things that were similar to them, and 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 you see, when I interviewed men, they were very conscious to point out that the women dilutees were not doing. They're like they did, they they did like the sweeping up, and they did this very sort of very simple work. I was over there doing the very sort of complex technical work that I'd been trained for, and there's obviously a grain of truth in that. You know, they've done seven year apprenticeships rather than three week, uh, you know, training courses. 
but you know there's a so, so there's a real tension there I think in wartime between the sort of pre-war ideas of a, of a man and the, and the wartime ideas of a man and, and different men responded in different ways to those tensions. Were any workers motivated to take industrial action as their predecessors had done during the Great War? Certainly a lot of the stuff in the Great War I've read is that there's all the soldiers really um, to say have a real negative attitude towards tra- trade union strikes um, that the, the, the home workers are getting paid far more money than the men in the trenches. Is there a similar sort of desire to take industrial action during the Second World War and does that sort of tension between front and home exist in the same way as it did in 1914 and 18? Yeah, I think so. I When I um, I did about 54 interviews with these men and they were very reluctant to talk about striking and I think for them it wasn't so much about the shame of having been on strike. I think it's because the time I did the interview um, the 80s had happened and really the 80s changed the way that people thought about trade unions and so they would, men who had been minors would, you know, decry Scargill and Thatcher and the way that, so I think it was about the sort of cultural, the, the cultural discussion around striking but yeah, there definitely was strikes during the Second World War um, and there's a, as the war goes on if you sort of look at a graph of it the, the strikes increase year on year as sort of war fatigue sets in and those sorts of things um, the coal industry was was probably the most strong, uh, strike prone, and like I say through the latter years of the war, intermittent striking through there. And if you look at the home intelligence files, which I have done, um, you can see a real tension um, in the way that striking is thought about. Um, um, so the report in the home intelligence files says that some people thought strikers should be shot, uh, they, they, should, they, they should be executed for sort of treason, especially those who had family in the, the military. They, they were incredibly judgmental and, and not at all incredibly, you know, they were harsh on, on these strikers. Those who came from a sort of working classes had more sympathy. You know, they wouldn't strike without good reason. Um, and there's generally the strikes were for pain conditions. They were there was various. They were very often very localized strikes. Um, in 1944, there was a big um, apprentice strike. They marched on London because apprentices during the war were asked to do full work, uh, but were still being paid their apprentice wage. And so they were they, there was a mass strike there to ask for full wages. Um, probably the most famous strike though was in 1943 in Hillington, where um, so the Rolls Royce factory in Hillington outside Glasgow was turned over to aircraft production. Um, and there was a huge number of women worked there and they went on out on strike for um, not really for equal pay that they started out by asking so they were pl- so there was skilled semi-skilled unskilled male rates and then other uh, and women were paid the other rate and women started out by asking for the unskilled rate um, and again, that um, that got a lot of um, a lot of tensions. Was there uh, one of the women who was in the strike talked about walking down the street near Hillington and somebody threw a rotten tomato at her face because you know the men were out fighting. How dare they, you know, ask for their fear, their fear of stuff like that? So yeah, there were there were strikes and for for various reasons, often not necessarily related to the war, related to pain conditions. My penultimate question is: How did British wartime policy shape motivation in the civilian industries? So I'm not sure it really ever did um and there were there was no um there's no medals there's no service pensions there's no none of the sort of things that are given to men in the military and men in the, the merchant navy as well um there are more emphasis sorry there was more emphasis in factories on welfare so especially in big factories and especially in big factories run by the government itself so things um canteens nurses um medical provision there were some um ENSA performances sent especially to the bigger factories that had a big canteen 
canteen where you could sit so you could have a singer and things like that so entertainment um tied to that you have things from the bbc which is not strictly speaking a government policy but with uh, you know programs to be broadcast where people work to try and, and you know improve morale and things like that um i'm not sure that it motivated anybody but it probably did make their time at work a bit more pleasant gave them uh, you know gave them access to health you know care that perhaps they wouldn't have had otherwise um but i think in general from my experience the wartime policy was something that was either given the nature of it was either it was imposed upon them and they continued with their job or it was imposed upon them something they sort of be there, there there weren't any sort of real um part to, to to create the sort of motivation that you would have in a certain way. and my final question is where can people learn more about your research um so um i have um two books uh so my first is called men at work working man in british culture uh 1939 to 1945 and that's based on my phd and that's about um that's about wartime culture, as the title suggests, which is about so film, radio, and visual culture, and the ways that in four wartime occupations, so industrial work, the merchant navy, firefighting, and agricultural work, how they've spoken about in in, in public discussion and in, in those media. The second book, which I've drawn more on today, uh, was Men and Men in Reserve, which was a book I co-authored with Professor Juliet Pattinson, the University of Kent, Professor Arthur, Mac- Arthur MacKay of Strathclyde, uh, and that's a book, an expansive book. It's really it could definitely hold up your wobbly table. It's uh, it's a book where we the interviews I spoke about today to think about um, men's wartime lives really from you know you know from the moment they started work you know through to their their home lives through to their, their sort of social lives it's a real sort of panoramic view of what what it was like to be a civilian during the Second World War uh, based on these these insights so it's uh, that's and that's um, available from Manchester Press. Lindsay thank you very much for your time. You're welcome thank you.